0: Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's extra Sunday supplement episode is with the comedian Matt Ford, who's the presenter of the Political Party podcast. And we're talking to him about his lifelong affiliation with the Labour Party and what happened during the Corbyn years. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude, with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis, and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics, writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. So Matt, we were going to do a live episode with you uh, at the Cambridge Literary Festival, and we were going to talk about your show Brexit, Pursued by a Bear, and then your show got cancelled, so I never got to see it, and then the Lit Fest got cancelled, and then everything got cancelled. But it's been more extreme for you, hasn't it? You've had a more extreme version of lockdown than most people.
1: Yes, yeah, I had to shield because of having severe asthma, which I didn't realise I had severe asthma, which sounds really stupid, but I've been on inhalers all my life, and in the last few years I've had a a string of chest infections that have needed antibiotics and steroids. So even though I can still exercise, can still run around, I don't need to cart an oxygen tank round with me to get upstairs, I'm not out of breath when I go upstairs, There are a couple of types of medication that I'm on that are listed in the advice for people who should shield. So So did it trigger one of those texts from the government? Well, I didn't get a text, is the thing. So I went on the Asthma UK website, which is a really good resource. And they've got really detailed information on there about whether you should shield with asthma or not. And I fell into the category of having to shield because of the two medications listed there. So uh, I live in a first floor flat I was petrified of getting it and still am and just thought the desire to go outside wasn't as strong as my desire to not get it so I just followed the advice to the letter and stayed indoors didn't go outside at all I don't have my own garden and um, did that for 11
0: weeks. You're allowed to open one window is that right? Well, I was opening more than one window. Okay, and so maybe I, I was cheerfully. <laughs> you could open one window,
1: <laughs> as I thought I was being. Yeah, I would poke my head out the window, but it was only this week, for the first time since March, that I, I crossed the threshold and went outside, and it was a remarkable
0: experience. Your description of it was remarkable. I mean, it was. Let's be honest. Partly the weather, right? You came out in this beautiful week, but you said it was like a changed world. I mean, the weather was crucial, really, but. It, Obviously, I can see the outdoors from my window. So it's not
1: as if I wasn't aware the weather was improving or that the the foliage was changing. But the local park that I'd walked on so often, when I'd last seen it in March, was wintry. It was thick with mud and it, it wasn't easy to walk over. And I think, I obviously knew it was the summer, but seeing that change, and it was so profound and so vivid, it made me feel like I'd woken up from a coma. And I think it wasn't just the physical world that had changed. I think a lot of us are psychologically on pause during this period in my head it's still March and I know that sounds daft but at the moment that we talk football isn't back yet so even the fixtures will effectively go back to where they were in March so and gigs haven't happened gigs that I was meant to be doing in the last few months like the ones you described it's such a surreal experience obviously know that it's June but then to see the visible evidence of it, and I just felt like all my senses had, had become augmented. I could smell flowers more. I could, the colours were brighter. It was, you know, for, for all, staying locked down has been a, really, for me, at worst, it's been an inconvenience, but it's obviously been slightly surreal. The benefit of being able to enjoy the world
0: in that way really was a price worth paying. And yet, we, we, we've all had this, I think, but you've had a more extreme version of it, so we've been cut off in so many ways from so many things. You've been podcasting, we've been podcasting. News has almost become more relentless. So you're removed from the world. You know, you don't know how fresh the air is until you go out. And it is fresher, isn't it? Yeah, mm. I mean, it's better to breathe. And yet you, like us, presumably, have had this kind of relentless drip, drip of politics. And when I read your account of it, so you did say it was like coming out into a new world. And I was thinking, what would it be like for any of us? if in march we'd also got cut off from the news and i know some people you probably do too a few people who've tried to do that but it's really hard yeah. i don't think there's anyone who's had a total news lockdown but if you did then come out into this political world cuz that hasn't been on hold do you think it would feel different or would if you'd come out into it do you think oh yeah it's like that march world just you know moved on a bit I think there are a couple of things that have
1: happened that make it really different. I think the furlough scheme is such a big deal that you can't underestimate that. And I remember how I felt. I felt emotional watching it being announced, just knowing the security that would give so many people. And you wouldn't have even necessarily expected a Labour government to go that far. So to see a Conservative government go that far, I think, was really profound for people.
0: So just Um, what was the emotion of seeing a... Tory Chancellor do it, because it's a complicated emotion if you're a Labour person, which you are yeah, or have been I, at various points.
1: Yeah, well, I was I was firstly surprised, but I just felt... I think it just sent, at that point, a signal that no matter who's in charge of this country, they will use the power and the might of the state to make sure that people don't fall behind. And And I, I think it's fair to say that at various points... In our lives, we don't always feel that the government is acting with those motives or or acting on them. So in a way, it kind of was the government telling the people, there's only so bad we're going to allow this to get and really proving it. And you just know that when these things hit, people's first concern is not getting it and not passing it on and, and their loved ones not getting it. But you know the worry of people that had to live week to week on money, that struggle with bills, that that must have just been such a big deal. And I still think that's out there as a feeling. I, you know, I think the Tories have probably squandered a whole load of goodwill in the last few weeks. But there will be a residual feeling about that moment, I think, that potentially they can capitalize on in the future. So I think that's a big deal. I also think the Prime Minister catching it and almost dying, I mean, that feels like ages ago now. Yeah. But again, I never thought I would feel emotional for Boris Johnson and, and and kind of be willing him to survive I obviously never thought I'd be in that position but I, I never thought I would feel sorry for him I feel a lot of emotions about him I never thought sympathy would be one of them and now again he squandered a lot of that since but I, I think there's there's a big emotional things for nations to go through psychologically and I think while we're in this process of still dealing with it and still being in it we're not currently reflecting in the way that we will once it's passed. And I think in three or four years time, when we look back and, and way longer into the future, I think that that experience was really shocking to be, all be glued to our TVs at night, wondering whether the Prime Minister was going to die. And obviously, in the, in the because he's fine, then we kind of get over it. And there's a whole load of other tragedies happening. and Tens of thousands of people have died in this country. But I think that was That was the bit where it felt really felt like a film. So I think had I woken up now and not lived through all that, I think it is a very different place.
0: And I'm sure you're right that some of those emotions are very, very common. I remember I was sitting on the sofa watching TV with my wife and she got a news alert saying that Boris Johnson had moved into intensive care. And it's the only time I can ever remember that a news alert felt like a real jolt. Like we both just sat there looking at her phone. And yet if you were following politics on Twitter, if you were absorbing the news, as most of us do in this sort of partisan way. It's not just that the Tories have squandered it, but the emotion, you barely see it covered. It it was partisan incredibly quickly, not immediately. but And I actually think the first one you mentioned, the emotion around the furlough scheme, it's a Tory chancellor, but this is the state looking after its citizens. Though that feeling might be quite common, it wasn't reported as such you would not get that at all from Twitter I don't think and I know Twitter's not the real world but that kind of coverage actually hearing you say it it's quite rare to hear someone say that
1: yeah I think with Twitter I always have to remind myself it's not the real world and I think it was one of the probably probably the best thing David Cameron ever said was that Britain and Twitter aren't the same thing and it's a real reminder that even though we know that to be true when you're engaging on Twitter it does feel like the whole world's on there so even though you know it's skewed, and even though you know you've skewed it yourself by choosing to follow the people you've chosen to follow, you kind of think, well, there's enough people making a noise about it. This must be the prevailing opinion. But I think you kind of have to train yourself out of that and just remember, particularly if you've, as both of us are, people who love politics and consume it in 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 ways that perhaps normal people don't. <laughs> you have to remember all the other people out there. I think my mum's not on Twitter. And her friends aren't on Twitter. And, and people older than her aren't on Twitter. And 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 just and if they are, they're existing in a different recess of Twitter than perhaps you and I are, are fishing in. So and I think it's about trying to imagine how other people would feel and taking the sting of politics out of it. If you were sat at home, petrified about money, and then the Chancellor stands up and says, effectively, don't worry about money until the end of this, of course that's a massive deal for people. Of course it is. So it's about putting yourself in other people's shoes. And also, of course, that that applied to the self-employed because they weren't getting those messages initially. So it was hugely concerning for them and very distressing. So I think if you think about life as logically as you can, you can imagine how these different announcements were hugely emotional for people that
0: were totally reliant on them. And there were sort of three set piece TV moments, which were each of them watched, I think, by 28 million or something. So it never happens anymore that we're all watching the same yeah. thing. Not all of us, but, you know, enough. It's like a 1970s Malcolm Wise or something. And was it the Queen and then Johnson? Or no, it was Johnson and then the Queen, I think. And then Johnson's second announcement. And the first one, the lockdown one, and the Queen. I think there was a sense that we were all feeling it the same. And it was uncharted territory and we were all in it together. My feeling about the second Johnson one, the one telling us the stages that we were going to come out, felt completely different. Not just because he had been sick and he seemed a little bit a shadow of himself, but suddenly all of the political controversy, complexity and anger, you could see it sort of just waiting to be unleashed second time around. Did you have that feeling too, that Johnson one and Johnson two were completely different?
1: Yes, they were. And I think... Although I still think at that point, there was still a lot of goodwill towards him. And and there will always be an element of humanity where people go, well, we know he's just survived death. So they cut him a bit of slack and a bit of leeway. And I always have to remind myself that there are people out there that really do like him, not just that give him the benefit of the doubt, but that actively desire him to be our prime minister and really, really rate him. So I always try and see it through those eyes as well. Would it shake your faith seeing him in that way? And I think most even-minded people would... On the second one, perhaps forgive a bit of waffle. I think, actually, that starts to run out pretty quick because, regardless, you're the person in charge and you have to demonstrate that you're keeping the rest of us safe. And I think that's where, since then, particularly with the Cummings episode, really people's loyalty. You know, the people I really think about are those people who are the Labour-Tory switchers at the last election in the Red Wall seats and places like that. Now, maybe the zeal of the convert means that they're still true blue for the time being. But I think a lot of people will think, you know what, we gave you a chance and you've just sat there and lied to us. And this is quite a humiliating thing for us to go through. I think people will take it quite personally.
0: So you were, like the rest of us, you were still talking about Brexit and joking about Brexit, but also being pretty (laughs) serious about Brexit. Uh, Yeah in March, because it was still the story. yeah. And now, it is still potentially the most important thing that's going to happen politically this year. And we're meant to believe, I think I do believe that the reason that Cummings is indispensable, despite the obvious damage that he's doing to not just goodwill, but trust in the government, is that Johnson cannot see a way of doing Brexit without him. And yet, there was a really interesting article recently in the Times about Opinion polling in those red wall seats, now blue wall seats, the northern seats, the ones that won Johnson his victory, asking people now in the middle of coronavirus what they feel about Brexit. And there seemed to be a big shift in people saying that a, a no deal Brexit was dangerous because we're currently in a space where people's safety is the number one political priority. And Labour voters who had switched were extremely anxious and potentially angry about the thought that Brexit would once again be prioritised, in which case it looks like holding on to Cummings is doubly dangerous. I mean, that's how it looks to me. Johnson and Cummings still seem to be assuming that at some point we're going to go back to where we were in March.
1: I just think think you're right. I also think this is a product of so many different things and primarily, quite apart from the character traits of, of Dominic Cummings and his initial reaction to the story where he comes out and he's kind of, trolling the media and being quite cocky and that whole kind of punk outlook that he's got or certainly tries to give off. I think he's really disrespectful at a time like this, regardless in a way of his personal circumstances. But the complacency that they have developed over the last 10 years and particularly the last five, this is a party and particularly a group of people, specifically the Johnson Cummings people, not just the Tory party in general, that have basically been able to get away with it. And that is habit forming. They've never really had to worry about having an opposition that's really going to press them. And they obviously think, well, we've got the best part of a parliamentary term left. Maybe it gets bumpy now, but we can we can level it out, give us a couple of years. But I just think that's so risky. I can't believe people in charge take that approach to power. Why put this stuff in jeopardy at all? If they really value Cummings that much, get rid of him quick and you can bring him back. Because really, Brexit's part of the thing, what they really care about is getting reelected. And they think Brexit, perhaps if they don't negotiate that properly or they don't navigate that properly, it impacts on Johnson's ability to to get reelected. So get rid of him quick. The anger would dissipate faster. It wouldn't have been as deep. And then you can bring him back maybe in a couple of years time. But the amount of capital they've burned and what really frustrates me is, is we talk about it as political capital, almost like it's just numbers on a spreadsheet, like it's internet banking. This is people's emotion. This is people's perception. These things are really deep. And just as Labour lost those heartlands, and that was an emotional change, and there was there were fence posts along that way, this is the first, I think, huge movement in the opposite direction where, okay, the maths might make it difficult for Keir Starmer next time and with what's happening in Scotland. But I think this is the start of the departure of Boris Johnson from Downing Street. And it's just a question of, whether it takes Labour, one or two goes to get him out.
0: And it's also true that I mean, in some ways they're behaving like he's the leader of the Labour Party because the Labour Party, as we learned, does not ditch its leaders. We've known that for a long time. It's incredibly hard for a Labour leader to be dislodged. But the Tories do it all the time. (laughs) And they do it to prime ministers who have bigger majorities than Johnson does. I mean, Thatcher had a bigger majority when they got rid of her than Johnson does now. And they also get rid of prime ministers and then tell people it was a health issue. That's also happened more than once. And the other possibility here is that Johnson loses significant parts of the Tory party, including the parliamentary Tory party. I know a lot of them are new intake and they got in on his kind of coattails. But at the same time, these are people from these seats, many of them. And the Tory party is not the party of political loyalty. And what he's also done, and this is part of the problem with the way that Dominic Cummings
1: has done politics, is he was actively alienating even people on his own side in the run-up to that referendum. You know, he told all those Tory Brexiteers that they didn't know what they were doing and they shouldn't be in charge. Now, maybe he had a point, but the way in which he handled his business alienated a group of people that at a time like this, he would have needed to go out and, and be supportive of him. And they weren't there for him. In fact, it was a lot of the Brexiteer Tories, people like Tim Lawton
0: that were calling for him to go first.
1: So he's just really bad at politics.
0: (laughs) He is. I mean, he's good at referendums, but referendums are still pretty rare events, and there isn't another one coming. No, and he was good at, you know, I mean, the North
1: East one, I think, fair enough in a way. But the the Brexit one, he stood on the shoulders of years of anti-European propaganda. The the conditions were far more favourable to him. It's still a huge result, but the conditions were far more favourable to him. And, of course, the state of the Labour Party at the time really... Gave them an effective head start, the Brexiteers, because the the Labour vote wasn't coming out. And again, it flattered them in the general election. So when you really analyze the forces around some of these things, yes, they're still impressive, but they're not as impressive as people seem to think.
0: Do you ever have that thought which I've had a few times during this that so Cummings Cummings and Johnson did effectively somehow bamboozle Parliament into giving them the election that they were then pretty confident they could win. But it didn't have to happen. And in a sense, the opposition blinked first. And there were moments where it looked like there wouldn't be an election, certainly not until the spring. So there could have been a, a future in which Corbyn is still leader. Johnson's there. Brexit hasn't happened. We're still waiting for the the break, the election, and then the virus hits so that we could have had a politics. That febrile, late 2019 politics under conditions of coronavirus. And at that point, my head just explodes. I can't imagine <laughs> what, can you picture what um, What would have happened? I mean, I like what, if an election hadn't happened and it was due maybe in April or May and Corbyn was still there, I mean, what? That is such a horrible thing to think about. <laughs> but
1: I, I, the, my main thought actually on that is, thank God Keir Starmer's in charge now. Firstly, I think it's been the perfect condition for him to to showcase his talent and his ability. But I think at a time when people are perhaps feeling a little less tribal than they were around the election, that I think it's definitely true people want their government to succeed through this. There's just a natural goodwill that flows to a government during a crisis that isn't of their making. Now, obviously, the way they've handled the crisis is of their making. But I still think within that, there's a sense of fairness and at this moment in time. You need, as well, a strong opposition that's going to ask questions, and even though at times, of course, is going to seek political advantage, can broadly do it in a tone that doesn't feel like it is. And I think that is so reassuring for the public to have Keir Starmer there, this guy that people know has this impressive legal background, who is doing it, I think, in a responsible and in a calm way. I just find it hugely reassuring, and I don't think people should underestimate yet the goodwill that that will continue to flow to Keir Starmer as a result of the way that he has behaved during this and I think the thought of not having that there of having Boris Johnson still behaving in the way that he was without that vital check and balance this situation would feel so much worse
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books
2: upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's com slash upgrade.
0: So how do you look back on the Corbyn years now? I I sometimes find myself thinking about the 2017 election. I still don't know what to think about that election. I don't know whether Corbyn did really come very close to being prime minister or not. I remember on the night itself having a like, wobbly half hour where I thought, <laughs> you know, you, you've got to broaden your imaginative horizons here because um and it you know it then fed into the mythology of sort of one more push and so on and then and then we got 2019 but when you look at the whole arc of the corbyn years how do you feel about it does it feel like a kind of time where the labor party lost its mind or were there moments where there were real possibilities for a new kind of politics a new kind of government no, I,
1: I, no. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I really, I really wish I could find some positive thing to say about it, but I think it was an an awful experience to go through and to watch the Labour Party become so self indulgent and so irrelevant and so toxic and and I tried to be as fair as possible. I think I hated everything about it. There wasn't anything I liked. The fact that he clearly wasn't cut out for leadership made the whole thing a joke. Just as Dominic Cummings' story about Barnard Castle doesn't make any sense. You're asking people to suspend you know, all their critical faculties in order to believe that nonsense. Jeremy Corbyn wasn't good enough to lead the Labour Party. wasn't good enough to be Prime Minister. Then there was all the other stuff that went with it. The anti-Semitism stuff was unforgivable. And I think will have implications and ramifications for the Labour Party way into the future that go beyond even Keir Starmer's tenure, I think. I think that has just done such deep damage. Labour's position on Brexit was a joke. I mean, the whole... You know, what's really... It was just a total waste of time. And what... You know what? I get so frustrated about it, I really struggle to articulate fully how I felt, but I I felt really angry that the Labour Party had been fully hijacked, that Labour history had been abused and warped, and that Labour, after... A couple of election defeats was in a position where it could still win and yet chose to go on this weird culture war. There was an immaturity at the heart of the whole thing that I just couldn't engage with and couldn't really forgive and couldn't enjoy in any way. I just thought the whole thing was a game by people that knew they were mucking about. And I was amazed that any element of the public at all brought into it. It didn't have a coherent, strong left-wing narrative. It was way to the left of me. It was definitely on the hard left. But a lot of it was just reheated 1970s stuff, led by a guy that was completely inept. And that that is an insult to people. You can't put that to people in a general election and, and say to people with a straight face, I think that this project should lead the country and that that individual should lead it. It broke every rule. From what I wanted from the Labour Party, and, and really, tragically, as someone who joined it as soon as I could when I was fifteen, worked for it for many years. It's the first time I would never have thought I'd be in a position where I couldn't vote Labour, and yet that's that's where I've been for the last few elections. So um, I, <laughs> I just did realise I'm all over the place, David. But I just I've, I couldn't find anything in it. I, I found it a really distressing and 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 again the tone of it. You know, we talk about Dominic Cummings, the way in which Jeremy Corbyn's supporters and key allies, powerful people in the party, spoke and behaved was unforgivable. And just a lack of desire to actually win an election. I grew up needing a Labour government. This offended every part of me. When I think about my mum and the fact that she needs a Labour government, and these people were walking around, you know, just waving flags and and wearing badges and all the rest of it. And I just thought they're not serious people. So therefore, the only conclusion you can draw is they don't actually care about the vulnerable. Because if they did, they would listen to the public and try and win. So I just, sadly, you know, it brought out everything that's bad about me. I I, I reacted with, you know, a level of hostility to it. I I just couldn't, I couldn't
0: abide it. So what did you feel in 2017 when 40%... To almost everyone's astonishment, including clearly Corbyn's. Again, I remember him on election night in twenty nineteen. On election night, he looked to me like he knew what was coming. In twenty seventeen, he looked as astonished as the rest of us, and it wasn't that close. But you know, the the mythology was a few votes and a few what became marginals, and and May could have lost her ability to form a government. But it was close enough that a lot of people clearly did manage to get past his ineptness. Was yeah, it about I mean, Brexit then? Was it was it because people actually didn't believe he had a chance and so it was like a free shot at the government? What was going on in 2017? It's still a really weird election, that one. It was an incredible election. That exit poll was like being punched in the face. And
1: I don't mean that in that I didn't want that poll to happen. It was just the physical shock. You just didn't see it coming. It came out yeah. of nowhere, that exit poll. And it was contrary to everything that former colleagues of mine were telling me about northern seats. Now, the sorts of predictions people were making in 2017 came to fruition in 2019. But in 2017, I've never been convinced of the argument that people vote for a party thinking it's a free hit. I I just (laughs) think it's a really odd logic to go, I'm going to take this risk. When I think Brexit was the big thing. And if you look at the seats that Labour won, and if you look at the seats that Labour lost, I think that tells the story. If you look at Canterbury and Knightsbridge and places like that, these are places that I don't think have all of a sudden become convinced of a need to nationalise huge parts of the private sector. I think these were places that were rebelling against Brexit. And at that point, Jeremy Corbyn had been far more effective at convincing people perhaps he was the best bet to stop. And he was a newcomer and people kind of liked him. I don't think at that point people had fully woken up so the, the full horrors of it. And Theresa May ran an awful campaign. And Theresa May was a prime minister who looked like every day in the job caused her physical pain. Like it was, <laughs> it was awful. It was like watching Gordon Brown again where you go, you don't look like you're enjoying the job. You almost in a way want to put her out of her misery. What I would say about the results is the Tories again increased their vote share. Theresa May, in terms of popular vote, scored a stunning result. It, it was the seats. And obviously we live in a system that puts seats first. so that it's, it, Fair play to Corbyn, he did one well on seat, and a share of the vote went up. But also, the mythology of the people that look back and say, oh, he was really close, totally ignores that actually to get the extra people was a mile too far still, even after all this ineptitude, even after Theresa May's disastrous premiership, people still preferred her to be Prime Minister. And it completely ignores the fact that Labour were incapable of clawing any ground back in Scotland they sold Corbyn as this guy that that could understand Scotland. And what it totally exposes is Corbyn's leadership doesn't understand Scotland at all. They just think, well, if you're really left wing, that's the way to defeat the SNP. And that has clearly been disproven. And it's clearly been disproven as well that that's the way to beat the Tory party as well. So the mythology totally skews the, the statistics and the numerical facts, but it also... Completely misjudges the mood of the country that we all knew that was out there, that people really never rated this bloke and he was never going to become prime minister. That said, I mean, to be fair to him, you can't take that result away from him. It was far better than, as you say, even he thought, but it was still a defeat. And that's the context in which it has to be viewed.
0: It also happened because the Liberal Democrats, 2017 and 2019, they got squeezed and they also, in uh, different ways, in the two elections, did badly i mean they ran bad campaigns during the corbyn years as a lifelong labor person did you look at the liberal democrats did you look at the possibility of a, a new party did you look at i don't know change uk or i mean that god knows how many different things there have been oh yeah but is it fair to say that you feel that you're tribally labor oh yes yeah yeah, yeah. And but I, did I, you as a tribal labor person did you flirt with the alternatives did you think about other options or do you just think we've got to sit this one out no, I, I, I'm not I'll, asking how you voted. I'm just. Oh asking. yeah,
1: no, I, I I did look at alternatives, and I because I just found, I found it so distressing, and to me, it wasn't Labour anymore. It, it was trading under the same name, but it, it there'd been a hostile takeover, and and they changed, they'd really changed what the party was. So I didn't vote Labour at all in any election under Corbyn's leadership, and I, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And, and because my Labour membership was founded on strong values of things like anti-racism. And the way the Jewish community was treated under Jeremy Corbyn was absolutely inexcusable. I couldn't vote for that, let alone the economic impact, my perception about what that would have been for the country. I I couldn't vote for it. Now, I've never voted Tory in my life and still haven't and and wasn't looking at the Tory party for that. But I was looking at the Lib Dems and I was looking at Change UK and I I thought actually that you know, the two-party system is is still so strong. But I think if you had a slightly different system, there was definitely a mood for something on the Liberal left that wasn't Labour. Now, why the Liberal Democrats couldn't capitalise on that, I don't think it's as simple as people say, oh, it's the coalition years and the tuition fees. I think actually people move on quite quickly from certain things. And particularly with Brexit, that was a huge reset, given that Corbyn wasn't going to pick up that mantle. I think, sadly, it turned out that Brexit on the Liberal left at that point wasn't a big enough draw to yank people out of the Labour Party. And people's loyalty runs deep. And that doesn't just go for activists and members. It goes for voters as well. And, And we know that that's breaking down. But still, the Labour Party can always rely on a huge block, millions and millions and millions of people that will vote for it in any election, regardless of who's leader. And the Lib Dems can't say that. and they fought a bad campaign, which was a real shame because I thought Joe Swinton actually, oddly, and I, I I fully accept I may be the only person alive who thinks this, I thought on those question time debates and on the Andrew Neal ones, she actually displayed far more political talent and gave far better and far more interesting answers. I accept that <laughs> no one else thought that, certainly judging by the reaction to some of the tweets I put out saying that at the time. But yes, at the moment Corbyn became leader, to be honest, I was on the lookout for something else because I could see the way it was going. So, And the Change UK, I thought, was one of the most hopeful events, really, of the last 10 years for, for my sort of politics, for new Labour people. I had such hope for it. And obviously, it never really got off the ground. But I was really pleased that they did it. And I think every single one of them should be really proud that they did that because they did it, I think, kind of knowing they were sacrificing their careers. Morally, they had to take a stand and they could stand no more in the Labour Party and some of them obviously in the Tory Party and I think
0: good on them for doing it. It's really rare to hear that and I often think that it seemed important at the time and as you say people's careers were on the line and then things happen Johnson wins, Brexit happens, Covid hits You know, and it feels like we've moved into a completely different phase of history and that's just all forgotten now and I was doing it even the way I asked you the question being slightly mocking like change of <laughs> or whatever they became but yeah it's true that they gave up their careers, all of them, didn't they? Presumably, yeah, felt- most of them knowingly. Maybe not all of them knowingly, but most of them knowingly. Mm-hmm. Um, it
1: felt like a big deal. It felt like, oh, mm-hmm. something's changing here. People have had enough. I think part of what it was was, you know, for a long time, even before this, even in the Blair era, people go, oh, you know, the two-party system, and you know, these parties are going to split one day. And I remember working for the Labour Party, and people go, God, maybe the Labour Party will split. And that was in two thousand and six. So it had kind of always been there in the background of my mind. What if? And I think it had reached a point where there were so many of them saying, well, if things carry on, we're going to have to do something about it, and not doing anything about it, that I think those people that eventually took the plunge realised they were becoming slightly incredible. They were genuinely losing credibility by saying, well, next time I'll go. And in the end, I think they realised they had to do it. And I was glad they did. And I think,
0: obviously, as a political project, it didn't work. So I want to ask you one more thing. This is something i wanted to ask you for a long time. Oh, God. Because um, I listen to your show. I'm a big fan of rock and roll football that you do. Oh, thank you very with, much. With Matt Dyson um, yes. on Absolute Radio. And you're carrying on doing it even though there's no football. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you're both Nottingham Forest fans. So it's a rare yeah. national radio <laughs> program presented by two Nottingham Forest supporters. Well, that's a good point. So presumably, you were a Forest fan before you were a Labour person, were you? When in your childhood did these two so identities lock in um yes i was forest first just because i think yeah. it's easier as a kid to get to football you no,
2: never know it is to...
0: no, 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 just checking
2: so, so that
0: leads to my question which is and people often make this point and obviously a lot lot of people listening to this aren't going to care less about football but um it doesn't have to be football but you know, the tribalism of politics is often now compared to the tribalism of sporting loyalties but you were a Labour person, you were a deeply attached Labour person, you you described it as tribal, but during the Corbyn years, it broke, and you did start looking around. Presumably, it's quite hard to imagine that happening in your relationship with Nottingham Forest, or is it? I I kind of have found myself thinking engagingly: what would have to happen to a football club? What would Forest have to do that would be the equivalent of what Labour did with Corbyn? Does the football loyalty go deep, or is it just that uh, there is no way that they could do that.
1: Oh, the football loyalty is way, way deeper because it is, oh, it is. <laughs>
0: a, way deeper. Yeah. And I think for most football fans, it is
1: because I wouldn't change my team because I didn't like the way they played. I mean, I've had friends that have fallen out of love with clubs that they've supplied a few Leeds friends that really struggled for a number of decisions that they took. Um, that were ethical. And they, these were Labour people as well. So maybe that's a, an interesting element of it. But and this start- is to do
0: with the ownership of the
1: club. The ownership the way of the play. club, yeah. It's not like they didn't like the style on the pitch. It's, this is about a business yes it run. wasn't anything to do with getting relegated or yes they didn't it wasn't that they found the, the style on or not that they that that was the reason that they'd fallen out of love but I'd have made when Ken Bates was involved with Leeds that wouldn't go because he couldn't stand Ken Bates and started supporting Burton Albion instead because he was living in derby so it, it does happen I don't think it would ever happen to me I mean unless Forrest were taken over by a bloodthirsty despot I would then you know I, I might boycott elements but even then I just think. I'd have an issue with the ownership. Let's say we had, a, you know, an undesirable ownership, which thankfully we don't, but if that were to happen. But I'd still want the team to win. I'd still be rooting for them. And I think that's what's different. In the last five years, I wasn't rooting for Labour. I Didn't want them to win. I, I didn't think they deserved to be rewarded for a number of reasons. So I think they are two very different things. And I think they are for most people. is Where the parallel is, is when you are in it and you do give it your loyalty, it's a huge part of who you are. I would define myself to myself as a Labour person and within that, a new Labour person. And I expended years of my life sacrificing social engagements and so many other things to keep that party in government. And it was a huge part of who I was. I was Matt Ford who works for the Labour Party. And that's what would get talked about in the pub with with mates who weren't political because they were interested in it. So to lose that, I have lost in a way a huge part of my identity. I'm not that anymore. And I don't like being against things. I'm an optimist. I'd always rather be for things, still for those values. It's that that Labour for a period wasn't, but it was uncomfortable. And it did make me think about the football connection and whether whether it was a character flaw of mine that I couldn't keep that loyalty. But I think football is a completely different sort of identity. Football really is, for me, it's where I'm from. I support Nottingham Forest because I'm from Nottingham. And my family supported them. So that's why I didn't support Notts County. But the Nottingham part of Nottingham Forest is crucial for me. It's the same reason I support England at the World Cup. Labour is different. Labour is about values, not about geography. So for that reason, I, I think that the, the two lords is very different. But they, they have a lot in common. And an election victory and a promotion you know, are, are very similar. Or a cup win, you know they are. There's no doubt. You, you celebrate in a in a very
0: similar way. That footage of Tory central office on the night and you know this election in twenty December 2019, when the exit poll came in, it was like sporting euphoria. It was like a yeah. you know, a world cup winning goal. They just went crazy.
1: Yeah, and if you're the defeated side, having to watch your <laughs> opponents celebrate like that, so I see Muller at. Wembley in 96, you know, when the Germans win, you just think, oh, God. it really rubs the defeat in, which is why I think parties should be really careful about showing cheering footage because I think, you know, when Nicholas Sturgeon celebrated Joe Swinson losing a seat, which is absolutely, of course, legitimate because it means the SNP have taken it. There is a little part of you that goes, ooh, <laughs> you know, it just feels a bit like, oh, it's like John Aldridge rubbing Brian Laws' hair after he'd scored an own goal against Liverpool in the FA Cup semi-final. You think, I don't go that far. You know, celebrate, but, you know, keep a lid on it a bit.
0: You said that the difference was during the Corbyn years, you didn't want them to win. And you can't imagine there ever being a time, even if you'd fallen out with Forrest, that you look at the results and Forrest are won and you're not pleased. And I often wonder with, you know, those people for whom the Glazers at Manchester United are were the Corbyn equivalent, as it were. You know, they just couldn't stomach it. And they they left, set up a new club, or Just stop going. Did they ever still see United win and not feel any pleasure in it? I assume there must be some part of you that still gets some visceral reaction. So is that, is that come back with you with Labour, if I'm allowed to ask that? Are you now back in the game in the sense that you're totally clear in your own mind, you want them to win?
1: Oh, I would vote for Keir Starmer to be Prime Minister, yeah. I mean, I still think Labour's got a long way to go. I mean, there's obviously still a part of me. There were individual results. I really wanted Vernon Coker to win in Gedling, and I was gutted that he lost his seat. You know, friends of mine that are Labour MPs and were Labour candidates, I wanted them to win. So there was still part of me that had, on an individual level, that loyalty and that desire. But yes, under Keir Starmer now, I think, you know, it's, it's game on, and I just think, so far, he's absolutely done all the right things to, to try and win back people who are in my position who are the centre left that want economic responsibility as, as well as strong Labour values. So I, th- I think he's got off to a great start. I'm not sure I'm fully there yet, because I think there are certain internal battles that he needs to win with the party to, to show the public that Labour has fully changed, not just leadership, but there needs to be a, a demonstration that top to toe, that that element has, has kind of been um, defeated and. and that may or may not be the case, but I get the centrum from he's serious about doing it. And he, you know, he's been highly impressive at, at highlighting Boris Johnson's failings and exploiting those. I see no reason why he can't do the same with, with the hard left internally in the Labour Party. There's just a sense of relief, I think. I'm relieved as a citizen of the country that we have a functioning opposition leader that will improve the government by holding them to account. And you know what, as well, I just feel I really didn't like being angry. I could feel myself getting angry. It's not like I was—I wasn't kicking things or setting fire to stuff. But I was really annoyed at what had happened with Labour. And at the moment, I don't feel that. And I just think a lot of that distress has dissipated a bit. So um, I suppose just by default, I feel more—I <laughs> feel more disposed, predisposed to to Keir Starmer and, and what he does with the party. But yes, I mean, I, you know, if there was an election tomorrow, I would—I would vote for him
0: and there won't be, and no, we've, exactly, had long, yeah. we've had a long ten, 10 weeks. I don't know how the last 10, I mean, the 10 weeks for you must have felt extremely long to you at various points, and 2024 feels impossibly far away. Or do you think, actually, you know, having been through the last 10 weeks, we're already just to kind of knuckle down and, and get on with it, that we've, you know, we've all survived something, and now we're you know we're back in the serious business of politics again? Or do you just, I mean, I sometimes think 2024, I just can't even imagine the world in 2024, quite a, quite hard to imagine, the world next year. Can we really wait that long? I don't know.
1: But what I do think is they think having that whole parliamentary term is is a great advantage to them. I think actually it contains huge peril because it's only after the event, once inquiries start to happen, once minutes are released, once emails get leaked about what cabinet ministers did and didn't ask for. Iraq is the one that obviously hangs over so many of us that were working in and around the party in the Blair era. And then, and obviously Tony Blair was still able to win a general election after Iraq, but it was quite soon after Iraq. Now, I I don't think actually Iraq would have ever cost Tony Blair a general election, but in terms of the narrative that has formed since he left, it is the dominating word. And the anger about Iraq is far more severe in the aftermath than it was at the time. And I think this has the potential to unfold over the course of a full parliamentary term where in two or three and four years' time, the anger about decisions that were taken, and why they were taken, and the way things were handled has the potential to be catastrophic for the government. And they might have been better off actually having this happen midterm and then being able to get an election out of the way in the next two years. Now, as you say, the Tory party is far more efficient at removing its leaders Is it inconceivable that Boris Johnson is gone by the next election? And if the next election were, say, Rishi Sunak against Keir Starmer, that's a far more interesting proposition, really, because you could see how Rishi Sunak at this point would be far more reassuring to the kind of, you know, centre ground politics. And you would have an election fought on the centre ground, you would hope, if it were those two. Now... God knows what happens, Boris might survive and Rishi Sunak might fall like a stone because of something else, some scandal that we're we're yet to know about. But that would make it a really interesting proposition. You know, making predictions in the last few years has been a a fool's game, but it's quite nice to fantasise about the fact that, you know, you can never take these situations for granted.
0: And that's what makes it so endlessly fascinating. If you want to find out more about what Matt does, not just rock and roll football, it's all at his website, mattford.com. In our regular slot this week, we're going to be talking to Adom Getachew and Gary Gerstle, both of them in the United States, about what's happened in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing, and we're going to be getting some insights from people on the ground. Do please join us for that. My name is David Brunsman, and we've been talking politics.